Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I am rejoined by Melissa Michelson and Brian Harrison to talk about their new book, Transforming Prejudice, Identity, Fear, and Transgender Rights. This was published in 2020 by the University of Oxford Press and, um, excuse me, Oxford University Press. Um, And it is a kind of subsequent analysis to their previous work, Um, on understanding how rights for um, marginalized or minority communities um, are integrated and to some degree accepted by the majority communities. But I'm going to let them talk a little bit about that after I ask them to introduce themselves and tell us how they came to this particular project. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Brian. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, thanks for having us. Hi, glad to be here. Glad you could both join me today. And Melissa, why don't you start out telling us a little bit about yourself and how you and Brian came to this project? Sure. So I am professor of political science and dean of arts and sciences at Menlo College out in California. And Brian and I have been working on research related to LGBTQ rights and how the public thinks about LGBTQ people for over a decade now. And we came to this project actually while we were finishing up our previous book, which hopefully listeners of this podcast will remember was about same-sex marriage. And of course, that legal battle wrapped up in 2015. But even before the Obergefell decision by the Supreme Court, some of the LGBTQ advocacy organizations we were working with at the state level had started to turn their attention to how how transgender and non-gender conforming people were perceived and treated. And so we started working with them on that aspect of LGBTQ rights in 2014. And that research eventually became this second book in the series, I guess we can call it, with a focus on transgender rights. Brian? Hi, I am Brian Harrison. I am a lecturer at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. And I'm not comfortable with the fact that we've been working on something for over a decade. That makes me feel very old. Um, But here we are. But I I love the research, so I'm I'm glad that we can keep doing it. Um, I I taught LGBTQ policy and politics about, um, I started about four or five years ago. And we started off talking about some history throughout the 20th century of how LGBTQ people were treated and how that's changed over time. And we talked about um, the, the deep-seated fear of particularly gay men in the 50s and 60s um, and how it transformed over and over time. And eventually we, we turned to transgender rights as well. And I had an enterprising student, grad student, raise their hand and say, huh, well, it seems like the the sort of cycle of history that we saw in the 20th century for gay men is sort of the same cycle of history we're seeing for transgender people. And we're just at the beginning of it. 
And I said, yeah, that's absolutely right. If we would have uh, lived in the 1950s and advocated for marriage equality for gay men, we would have been laughed at. We would have been, that, that concept just wouldn't have even appeared in, in someone's uh, thought process. And that's because at the time, gay men were still seen as threats, threats to kids. Um, they were seen as mentally ill. There was this, this there was a different public opinion toward uh, particularly gay men, but also lesbians and bisexual people. And it wasn't until opinion transformed and changed to a point where policy appeals could be made, like marriage equality. And I think there are a lot of parallels. There are, there's a sizable portion of the American electorate uh, and citizenry that just find transgender people weird or disgusting, or in some way they're just uncomfortable. So there are a lot of parallels between the beginnings of, you know, the policy movement in the United States for gay men, just as for right now, we talking about sort of full equality for transgender people and gender nonconforming people just isn't in the cards. And so um, what we thought we needed to start with was a little bit of history. And that's the first chapter talking about how opinion changes over time and how that coincides with policy changing over time. And so for transgender people, um, we were hoping maybe we could use the same theory for our second book as we did for the first and say, here are some techniques to, to convince you that transgender people are part of your community, um, have a lot in common with you, and therefore that should lead you to be more supportive of transgender rights. And what we found was it doesn't really work like that. And so we had to go back to the drawing board and say, okay, where is public opinion at this moment? Not where do we want it to be? And we took stock of how people thought and felt about transgender people and really devised the theory from there, um, which, as it turns out, is markedly different from where people were in 2008 when we started our research on marriage equality. And, and that's one of the places where I wanted to start this conversation is not only discussing the theory that you developed in Transforming Prejudice, but the theory that you had in um, your previous book or the first book in the series um, (laughs) (laughs) in terms of the dissonant identity priming um, and how that theory that you had developed and explained um, and, you know, wrote an entire book about and did quite a lot of really interesting research on um, can you explain that theory and then to start to start to point out the ways that it didn't quite fit in the analysis of transgender equality and rights and politics? Yeah, so the first book was really all about hearing from somebody with whom you identified as a, a fellow member of your in-group and getting a message from that in-group member that support for same-sex marriage was what they believed in and and so encouraging you to believe that as well. So for example, in one of my favorite experiments from that book, if you're a fan of the Green Bay Packers and you hear that one of the Green Bay Packer Hall of Famers supports marriage equality, that might make you rethink your attitude about same-sex marriage And it's dissonant because you wouldn't expect a professional football player 
to be supportive of same-sex marriage, given that it's such a heteronormative sport. So if you heard from somebody who was a religious leader in your preferred religion, somebody who was a leader of your political party, if you heard from somebody who was a member of your shared race, if you heard from somebody and they were supporting same-sex marriage, that cued your in-group identity, and especially if that message of support was dissonant or surprising, so that it really got your attention and made you process it, then you were much more likely to rethink. But what we found was that that wasn't working for transgender rights, in part we think because people understand marriage and gender identity in very different ways. And it's very reasonable to think, well, same-sex couples want lifetime commitment. They love each other. They're just like me. They should be able to get married just like me. That's a, a fairly easy step for people to take. But most people don't feel like they have something in common with transgender people. They view transgender people with fear or disgust. They don't like the idea that gender isn't binary. That's threatening, actually, to their own self-identity. And so because we're asking people to change their opinion about something that maybe is threatening to them instead of something that really was just about a common humanity, we found that it required a, a different approach. I would also add in the in the first book, there was an element of social pressure. And if you heard that a leader of your of an identity group that was important to you, or even just a prominent member of an identity group that was important to you, supported LGBTQ rights or marriage equality. It did, it sort of changed your identity within that group, which had nothing to do with LGBTQ rights. So like Melissa said, if you knew that um, a football player, a professional football player was supportive of marriage equality, you had two choices. You could say, I guess I'm not that big of a fan of football after all. You could change your identity as a football fan, or you could see being a football fan as being compatible with being supportive of LGBTQ rights. And what we found was the latter. People didn't change their racial identity or their religious identity. Hearing that someone that was a member of their in-group supported marriage equality, they just saw it as not as incongruous as they had thought. And so what we hoped was we could th- the same process would, ha- would happen for transgender people. You could say we have this identity in common um, and you know, rather than change your feeling about that identity, you would change your opinion on transgender rights. And that just didn't happen. And so, like I said, we sort of went back to the drawing board and said, okay, this doesn't work um, in the way that we had thought. So why? And as Melissa said, people are just in a different headspace about transgender rights. And a lot of that has to do with a, a discomfort and, frankly, disinformation about what it means to be transgender. So as we undertook this effort of trying to move opinion to be more supportive of transgender people and rights, it became a lot more about reassuring people rather than sort of getting people to think outside of their identity group. It, it was uh, telling people, you know, the way you think is okay. The way you identify is okay. And you know, branching out a little bit doesn't affect your uh, core identities. It doesn't make in anything for you more uncertain than it was before. And so 
in some ways it's a logical extension of the first book, but in another way, it's really completely different. Okay. And so as we are talking about how the, the, the thesis in transforming prejudice is different from dissonant identity priming and the theories in the first book, I did want to ask you to explain essentially the, the core of this is people understanding their gender identity. Um, and, and to some degree sort of saying, Oh, I, you know, didn't know I had a gender identity. I, I guess I do. Um, and what does that mean to me? Because in a lot of ways, that's a lot of what you're sort of unpacking is how, how do people think about their gender identity and, and how does it sort of shape their thinking about other people's gender identities? Can you talk a bit about, um, this sort of understanding our own gender identity? I think it is. Yeah. (laughs) Go ahead, Brian. Oh, sorry to interrupt you. Um, I think you, you're exactly right. A lot of people aren't really forced to think about their gender identity because they identify with the same gender. The, the gender that they identify with is also the sex that they were assigned at birth. And it's not something that they necessarily need to think about because those two things are the same. And there is a degree of education because like you said, everyone has a gender identity, whether you, whether it's something that is salient to you or not, it's something that everyone, everyone has. So the first step in the process really was to say, yes, you know, you like everyone have a gender identity and it may be more or less important to you, but you do have one and moving from there, as opposed to with sexual orientation, it's a pretty well-known construct. It didn't surprise people to say, I identify as uh, heterosexual, straight, lesbian, bisexual, that was something that's already well ingrained. But to go to people and say, this this binary, this gender binary that you have operated under for your entire life is wrong or is not reflective of what we see in nature and what we see in, in human nature, it was really upsetting to people to think that maybe this this sort of bedrock principle of the way that they make sense of the social world might be incomplete or might be not quite as accurate as they once thought. I think it's about more also than just getting people to realize they have a gender identity, which they never had to think about because they have the one that is the norm. It, a lot of what we're talking about in this book is about how reassuring people that they are good people or appealing to the parts of people that are good is a way for them to overcome those feelings of discomfort and m- and move towards being more accepting. And so when we're in the experiments, when we're using things like uh, journey stories or moral elevation evoking videos, we're appealing to the good in people, not necessarily drawing attention to their gender identity, but just reminding them of the parts of themselves that are good and the ways in which they want to continue to think of themselves in positive ways and encouraging that rather than you know, focusing on this idea that maybe their gender identity is now being um, threatened or that it isn't what they thought it was all these years of their life. And just to add to that, there, there, was, there is a lot of, and we know from social psychology research that shaming people never works. 
So if we were to go to someone and say, oh, you don't support transgender rights, gosh, you are outdated. You are behind the times. How dare you deny people their okay, rights or boomer whatever with you are anti trans? Sorry. Right. <laughs> no, absolutely right. Shaming people doesn't work. It just it it boomerangs or it stops people in their tracks. They don't listen to what you say next. So and we, you know, we see this anecdotally in, in the real world, right? Where people on social media are outraged about everything. And we sort of jump from zero to 100 of the of canceling people. And we said, no, that's not going to work for transgender rights. We need to reassure people. As Melissa said, we need to remind people of the good parts of humanity. And rather than shame people, sort of lead them down a better path and to give them, to sort of model the way to become a, an ally even if they don't sort of make that entire journey on their own. And so you developed the theory of identity reassurance, um, which is the, the theory that you sort of work on and research and sort of formulate in the course of this book. Can you explain that? And the distinction, you've sort of laid out parts of it um, already, but in the distinction between that and the previous theory that was part, was the driving framework for the previous book. Yeah. So there's a difference here between reinforcing people's positive self-conceptions and the older theory, which was about priming a shared identity as part of a larger group. So for example, with... Um, this positive reinforcement for the transforming prejudice group, we are reinforcing people's perceptions of themselves as sufficiently masculine or as, um, as good people. Versus in the other book, we were priming their identity as a fan of the Green Bay Packers, as a African-American person, as a Democrat or a Republican. And so Right. Instead of it being about a group that you're a member of and taking a cue from other members of your group or or elites from your group, it's about who you are internally and the good parts of yourself in terms of like your values, your, you know, that you personally, not because you're a member of any group, but you, you personally are a, a good person um, who wants to treat other people well because that is a good thing, right? That it's more about you just being a good human being. And, and it, uh, yeah, go ahead. I think the key too is um, it's, a, it's an entirely diff different approach because in many experiments in the book, we acknowledge people's discomfort. We don't say, you know, you, in the first book, we wouldn't have said lots of people are against marriage equality. How about you? Um, in this book, we take a different approach because like I had said at the beginning, you can't change people's attitudes overnight. You can't do it through shaming or making them feel like they are wrong in some way. And really the underpinning of this book is to acknowledge people's discomfort. And in several cases we say, uh, we understand lots of people are confused or um, you know, are unsure about transgender identity. And that's okay, but that shouldn't be the end of your thought process. And we, we cite the literature in the book that shows that when people feel like they're heard, when people feel like you understand what they're feeling and thinking, they're more likely to listen to what you have to say next. And that really was the key. If people are uncomfortable, 
it's easy enough to say, no, forget it. I'm uncomfortable. I don't want to talk about this anymore. But by encouraging them to say, to, to, to acknowledge their discomfort, to say that that doesn't make them bad people, but that's really the beginning of a conversation. What we found was we can lead people down uh, that, that path of persuasion, or at least that path of openness um, in a way that we didn't necessarily have to when we were talking about marriage equality. And, and so I wouldn't, I wanted to ask you about the various experiments that you did in the book that formed the, the, the research, um, you know, that sort of opened up your thinking and sort of your conclusions about how to move people towards being more accepting of transgender rights and transgender individuals as themselves in society. Well, there are all of all of the experiments in the book are fabulous, but uh, I'll tell you about one of the ones that's my favorite. And then uh, I think Brian has a different favorite, but my favorite one is one that's called a journey story. Part of the reason it's my favorite experiment is it cost a couple hundred dollars to conduct. And I did it all in one day with my parents. So uh, when it's not a pandemic, my parents live on one of those streets where like everybody and their cousins gets in a car and drives to your street to walk up and down and look at all the over-the-top decorations and get candy. And my parents and their neighbors have to buy like a thousand candy bars. Um, so a lot of people come by their house. I'm like, perfect. Let me get some data. And so... We came up with the journey story experiment, which was two versions of a paper survey. One of them just saying, hey, here's what transgender means. Do you think people are born trans? How do you feel about transgender people, et cetera? And then the, the treatment script said, you know, here's a picture of a mom and her transgender daughter. This woman was opposed to transgender people, didn't, you know, didn't think they were real but then when her child said that she was transgender, <clears throat> the, the mom changed her mind, you know? So it's giving people permission. Uh, it's taking them on this mother's journey and giving them permission to also say, yes, people are born transgender. I'm comfortable with transgender people. And so my parents and I stood outside their house for about six hours on Halloween, uh, giving away $2 Duncan gift cards to anybody willing to complete the survey and um, my parents had a great deal of fun, really too much fun. Um, and we collected all these surveys and, um, and it worked, right? So even with a fairly small sample of fewer than 300 people giving me usable surveys, we were able to show that if you were assigned to treatment, if you got the survey with the journey story on it, you were more likely to say that trans people were born that way, you were more likely to say you were comfortable with trans people, you were more supportive of trans rights. And so it was just this beautiful example of how, you know, you, you just need to like show people this path towards opening their minds and in a way reassure them that it's okay to change your mind, which is I think something we've heard quite often recently when we're talking about political uh, electoral campaigns but it works for transgender rights as well. And, and it appealed to people um, in a really compelling way. And yeah, and it was also just a load of fun. And I love talking about that experiment because it's also an example of a way that people without large research budgets, which I think is 
most of us can find ways to collect data, right? All you need is a busy street and six hours and, and you've got a publishable experiment. And Brian, your favorite experiment? I sort of feel like I'm talking about my kids. You're not supposed to have a favorite um, about experiments. <laughs> I, like, I like all of the experiments. Actually, if my kids ever listen to this someday, I love them equally too. But uh, I do think that the, the chapter on gender roles and masculinity was my favorite chapter. And I think it's difficult to talk about opinion toward transgender people and rights without thinking about individual level gender identity. And we did a series of experiments to sort of explore both identity threat and identity bolstering, which I thought were really interesting. So uh, respondents were given a battery of questions, either about um, the their sex, uh, their presentation of um, being masculine or feminine, or the, it was called the BEM sex role inventory, or they took what's known as the big five personality test, which is a pretty standard um, survey to take in psychology. So among those who took the, the sex roles inventory, we either told them that their results showed them that they were very uh, masculine or very feminine. And obviously the, the interpretation of that was different if they identified as men or women. So we took the, the approach men who were told that they were very masculine uh, would have their identity bolstered men who were told that they were very feminine would have their identity threatened and vice versa for women. And so what we thought was this threat condition uh, based on previous research would be really uh, profound for men given, you know, toxic masculinity and its effects. Men who have their gender identity threatened would behave and, and think a lot differently, but we didn't really think that women would change their mind. And that's really what we found in this series of two experiments. So for the threat experiment, again, we randomly assigned um, the score of this battery for men, either saying you are very masculine or you are more on the feminine side of the scale. And what we found was men for whom we told uh, were on the more feminine side of the scale were far and significantly so less supportive of transgender people uh, having access to the bathroom that is safest and most comfortable for them, and we're more likely to vote against um, ballot. Or, I'm sorry, bathroom access on a ballot. And so, in other words, when we were, they were threatened, when they thought that oh, actually, my gender performance is not what I had thought, they're much less supportive of transgender rights. Women, on the other hand, really had no. There was no measurable effect. It didn't matter if you told a woman that she was more masculine or feminine. Um, she was generally supportive either way. Now on the, on the flip side, um, in terms of bolstering, um, it was the same actually for men. If you were to bolster their gender identity and say, oh, wow, you are in the top X percent of masculinity for those who took the survey, they were a little bit more supportive of transgender military service. And would and said that they would vote in favor of transgender military service, and women uh, again, like the first experiment, were not really changed based on this identity bolstering. So, the the chapter on gender roles I think was really interesting because again, transgender identity and rights is so uh, is so wrapped up in individual gender identity and gender roles, and what we found was men in particular are susceptible to threat. And potentially, 
um, susceptible to bolstering. But it really was about the person. I remember in the early days of the book, I wanted to to um, to, to title the book. It's not all about you. And um, <laughs> Melissa said no. Which, you know, to be fair, she was she was right. She was right. But really, that is that's the the tack we're taking here is we have to acknowledge your individual identity. But it really isn't about you. It's if we can make you feel comfortable and confident in your own identities. Um, many of the uh, experiments show that people can sort of rise above and say, OK, I'm comfortable. I'm confident. I feel better about myself. I'm ready and I'm in a position to think about other people as well. And and this is one of the things that you both do in your research, both when you write together and separately, is that your research is also often prescriptive and advocacy oriented, um, as in let's figure out how to move people um, on this issue. And here's a blueprint of like how we should do this. Um, and, and I appreciate that because it sort of the straddles the the sort of realm of activism and, and, you know, sort of the ivory tower, um, ness of many of our disciplines. Uh, but I wanted to ask you in terms of those dimensions of your research, what, what way we should go? How should we actually try to move our neighbors and our, you know, the entire country, um, towards more, acceptance now that we know that it is also about us personally um as well as about people who are marginalized and um and in fear for their lives because this is actually one of the biggest issues for transgender individuals in the united states is the the threat that they feel a lot of the time I guess I do consider myself a scholar activist. I mean, I went into this profession because I wanted to try to make the world a better place. I didn't go into this to, you know, to write books for the royalties or to, to you know, to spend my time doing work that wouldn't matter. I deliberately went from being um, a young activist who, you know, took the 51 bus from Alameda to Berkeley to march in anti-apartheid protests to being an activist who works on behalf of all different sorts of marginalized communities. And I see that as why I do this, like why I'm here. So I feel like writing books that are prescriptive, that show people how to make the world a better place, that show how to make people better able to live up to their core values of equality and, and justice that is what I'm all about. And I don't apologize for that at all. I understand that some people think that academics should be more neutral, you know, that we are just here to observe. But I don't think that's what I'm here for. And I think that it is almost my duty as somebody who knows a lot about this and has spent all this time studying the issues to try to use my power for good, to try to use my research to improve people's lives. And as you mentioned, maybe to save people's lives, because we really are talking about an epidemic of violence against transgender, non-conforming, non-gender conforming people. And so, yeah, stop that. And if, 
you know, if, if our books can help people stop being transphobic, if they can make it safer for transgender and gender nonconforming people to be out in the world without fearing that they're going to be harassed or assaulted, um, I, I'm a hundred percent in, you know, I'm a thousand percent in for that. And I don't care if people think that that means I'm more of an activist than a scholar. I think, I think being a scholar activist is a thing. That's why I'm here. Like Melissa, I have really strong opinions about this too. Um, I think every, every scholar has a point of view. You like to think that you don't, but you are taking points of view in, in your work. And I think we just make that more explicit. I don't think we're doing anything different than most people. We're just being more upfront and honest about what we hope the, the end game of our research will be. We went on a book tour for our first book. And I think to, there was it 37 stops, Melissa, all over the country. And 38, I forgot. I remember talking right. to you about that and how you structured it. It was really interesting because most academics don't go on book tours. Highly recommended. It was super, super fun. It was super fun. Yeah. Um, but there was one particular place, and I won't say where it was. It was a little hostile to this idea of um, of activism. I'm curious if Melissa is thinking of the same place that I am. And we actually got the question, you know, for our first book, did you test how to make attitudes toward marriage equality less supportive, how to make people less supportive of marriage equality? And we said, no, why would we do that? And they said to us, well, you're just biased then, right? So you're just looking to 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 move opinion in one direction and not the other. And I said, damn right, we are right. Why would we want to make people less supportive of equality? And they sort of hemmed and hawed. And, and I said, well, this particular person studies race. And I said, well, you know, in your work, you find ways to make people less racist. Do you find ways to make people more racist? And of course he said no and grumbled at me because he's whatever. I think a really and, good parallel, yeah. sorry, I have to interject this, like a really yeah. good parallel that's very relevant is I do quite a lot of work on getting out the vote. We would not consider work that tries to decrease turnout to be ethical, right? So like the whole field has taken a side in terms of saying, yes, more democratic participation is good and it would be bad to research ways to make people stay home and not vote. So there are norms. Um, that, you know, as Brian said, like, we're just being explicit about it. And I think to your second question of, you know, how we can speak to our friends and neighbors and, and coworkers to, to make change. Um, I know we spoke about my solo author book, uh, which really addresses this, that question more directly, but we also talk about it in this one. And I think there are some keys to changing minds across the board. And I think one thing is we just become bad at talking about contentious things as a, as a, as a rule, we've become more uncomfortable with with difference. And a lot of people don't know how to, how to deal with it. If someone thinks differently than they do, it's easier to just dismiss them as an idiot and to call them a name or to tweet how awful they are and, and you know, move on. And that's a really a disturbing trend. We have to get better at interacting with people that we disagree with and, you know, if not changing their mind, at least having a conversation that doesn't close their mind. And I think that's what I would encourage for people to do for, uh, on transgender rights. And again, it's, it's about, it's not about shaming people. It's not about telling them how they're wrong. It's listening to them and it's hearing 
opinions that you may vociferously disagree with and think are outdated and you know bigoted but it's it's listening to someone in a conversation it's accepting that they think something different than you and then finding the the most effective path to to moving them toward your view and that's really what this this research is all about it's it's saying okay we understand you're uncomfortable with transgender people do you know what transgender people are if not hey let's talk about you know the difference between sex and gender or maybe it's saying okay i understand that you're uncomfortable but let's work past that discomfort and come to a conclusion that while you're a good person transgender people are good people too and they deserve to be treated equally and with respect it, it's about interpersonal skills that we have often disregarded in political conversations and i think if you sort of go to the root research in interpersonal communication we're really bad at some of the basics and so like i've mentioned this this book just shows the research that says rather than shaming rather than making people feel badly about themselves um, come to the come to the table with an open mind as you hope the other person would listen to what they have to say and then here are some strategies to move things forward and not just agree to disagree and and leave in the same place that you that you were when you started. Um, and one of my final questions for the two of you on this particular research um, is is also about uh, how to approach with that open mind. Um, and and you know we see this on on social media all the time, people being smacked down because they've articulated a position. Um, I, I wasn't going to ask about JK Rowling. Um, but you know, we do, we do see this. And part of what you're talking about is how to get people to the place where they're comfortable in their own gender identity so that that is, you know, something that they don't have to worry about when they think about, the gender identity of people who might be different than them. Um, and, and so social, social media is not necessarily the place to do this. It's, and Brian, your own work talks about the fact that this is better done in a certain sense, face to face, which is harder to do in a pandemic. Um, so what are some of the, you know, sort of lessons we can take away from the research in transforming prejudice? I think one of the ways that you can use the research in your own life comes comes back to my favorite experiment, the journey experiment. Tell the person you're talking to your own journey or share the <clears throat> share the journey story of somebody else, right? That gives them that permission structure to change their own mind and it helps you have the conversation in a way that isn't about that person and you're not threatening that person, but you're saying, "Hey, you know, I, yeah, a lot of people feel that way or felt that way. But, you know, I was uncomfortable at first when I thought about the idea of transgender people. But then, you know, I thought about this and I read about that. And and now I, I see it, that, that gender is a, a continuum and that transgender people, you know, deserve their full equal rights. So that you make it not a threat, that you that you give them that path. Because it might even be, I think, that some people are okay with changing their mind or reconsidering their biases, but they don't know how to get from where they are to where 
kind of deep down they want to be, right? Um, that or that they feel like they have to be a hundred percent comfortable with transgender people to move towards treating transgender people equally. And so you you give them a path, you acknowledge their discomfort, right? And um, you know, as Brian said, like really try very hard to not shame them, to not criticize them for where they are, but but focus more on where you want them to go and and try to give them a route to getting there. There's a lot in there's a lot also in the book about just starting the conversation. You know, so you know, if you're sitting at the dinner table and your mom or your son says, well, blah, 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 transgender bias thing, um, you know, say, huh, that's, that's interesting. Tell, you know, tell me more about that. Tell me why you feel that way. And, and that you just start the conversation because part of it also, you know, not so much online because we all feel pretty emboldened to say things and to be critical of each other online. But when we're talking about interpersonal conversations face to face, even if that's just with our own families and our little pandemic bubbles these days, you don't usually want to confront people. You don't want to talk about things that are uncomfortable. And so you might just let that anti-transgender comment slide, you know, but if instead you go, let's pause on that. Can you, can we talk about that and tell me why you feel that way? And then share your own attitudes. Again, it's a lot of it is just about getting that conversation going so that you can bring in the information like, hey, um, let me let me tell you this story or, you know, um, let me give you some more information. And you can't do any of that if you're not willing to have that uncomfortable situation. So I tell people, you got to channel your inner superhero. You, you got to be brave enough to have that uncomfortable conversation because if you don't have the conversation, that person is never going to change their mind. So you've got to, you've got to step up and do it. And that is maybe the hardest thing. Yeah. It's certainly the sort of uncomfortable encounter um, with somebody who usually you like and respect. Um, and so it, it, it does feel sometimes threatening to a dynamic, you know, a friendship or a relationship. Um, but yeah, it's absolutely, it, it's but it works, right? Exactly. Because again, if it's somebody you're close with, they're going to listen to you. Right. And so as much as the closeness of the relationship makes it hard for you to have that conversation, it also is part of what makes that conversation more effective. Right. I know that's a lot of what Brian talks about in his book as well. Um, so I know you and I, Melissa, were talking about your next project that you and Brian are finishing up. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So Brian and I, just this morning, were putting on some finishing touches to our third book together, which is called LGBTQ Life in America. And it's an ABC Clio book, so it'll be a reference book. And it's looking at all sorts of myths and misconceptions about LGBTQ people and then, you know, sharing the facts, giving, giving useful information. And it's not original research, but it was really quite delightful to work on. We both learned a lot. And I think a lot of people are going to find this book a really great resource. I had my own high school student 
my son read it, and we had a bunch of other young people read it for us as well, since they are the intended audience. And, you know, across the board, we found that they thought the book was great and that they learned a lot. And so we're hoping that that will also be true for hopefully the many thousands of people who will also go visit this book in their local academic library. Well, I look forward to it coming out and perhaps we can have the third edition of Melissa and Brian on the new books in political science podcast to talk about it um, when it hits the the shelves of your local bookstore. Um, But I did want to thank both Melissa Michelson and Brian Harrison for joining me today to talk about their book, Transforming Prejudice, Identity, Fear, and Transgender Rights. This is from Oxford University Press and came out in 2020. I assume this can be purchased at the Oxford University Press website and other online retailers. Do you have a particular preference? Absolutely. Well, you know, we we want to encourage people, I think, to use the Oxford Press website, and they do have a holiday sale going on, so jump on that. Buy, buy both books in the series while you're there. Great. Thank you to both Melissa and Brian for joining me today.